I lost my glasses when I was 11 years old. And I remember going to my dad thinking he naturally will buy me a new pair of glasses. And he said, you're going to have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I created this little penny candy business, Matt. And I was able to not only buy myself Miss Beasley glasses, which is what I really wanted, but I was able to save enough money to buy my first car. So that was the beginning of my journey into entrepreneurship. If you're an active real estate investor and you're looking to do larger deals, you're in the right place. We are gonna go and take the conceptual type of stuff that you listen to from other real estate podcasts and bring it down to the tactical, the nitty gritty, the actual actionable types of things that other real estate investors that went big did to grow their own real estate empire. You're listening to the Go Big Live podcast. I'm your host, Matt Druin. Hey, what is up, everybody? Welcome to the Go Big Live Real Estate Investors podcast. I am your host, Matt Druin. I have a fabulously awesome guest with me today, uh, somebody that I've been following for a really long time, Ms. Deb Cleveland. Uh, Deb, with over 32 years of experience and more than 400 units renovated, Deb is a force to be re reckoned with in the real estate world. But what truly sets her apart from her heart-led mission to transform entire neighborhoods, bringing them from bright blight to brilliance through her relationship-oriented approach. Starting with an extreme life-altering event and a whole lot of determination, she turned a broken-down brownstone into a thriving real estate empire. Now she's a trusted advisor, author, supporting fellow business owners who share her passion for real estate investing. Her focus on people over profit makes her a true community champion. Thank you so much for being on our show, Deb. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me, Matt. Great to be here. Excellent. So let's dive in. My first question is always, you were born and now you're here. What happened in between? Let's see. The turning point for me as an entrepreneur is I lost my glasses when I was 11 years old. And I remember going to my dad thinking he naturally will buy me a new pair of glasses. And he said, you're going to have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I created this little penny candy business, Matt. And I was able to not only buy myself Miss Beasley glasses, which is what I really wanted, but I was able to save enough money to buy my first car. So that was the beginning of my journey into entrepreneurship. And then as I went along, I ended up being, I, I ended up getting married. I was a single parent. Started my first business when I was 30 years old out of my spare bedroom. I worked my straight commission job and then started this little tiny business that grew into a $2 million company within five years. Wow. And at the same time in tandem, what I realized I had this epiphany, like, wow, I'm making really good money. And it took a bit, you know, because I was strapped at that time. I was making money and I was work and I was young and I had the energy to work those 60 hours, 70 hour weeks, which I'm sure you can appreciate, but I wasn't building wealth. And that's when I really got into investigating and understanding wealth building with real estate investments. And that's, that was the beginning of buying my first rental property. So let's talk about it from there. I mean, what inspired you to get into real estate? It sounds like you may were like researching on different types of wealth building tools, but what led you to, all right, real estate's a good idea. Let's, let's do it. Was there somebody that inspired you to do that? Or was there a book that you read that inspired you to do that or what? So as a single parent, I had a lot of time on my hands at night. So I would just, I read a lot of books on manifestation because it just seemed like that was the route for me to go. It was more spiritually based. It wasn't so much, I had such a great business head on my shoulders that I just came into this planet naturally with. Mm -hmm. So it was really about like, 
how can I intend this? What's the intention? What's the, what is holding me back from really taking that next step? And one of the books that really influenced me, and I think it's still a publication, is, let's see, Millionaire in the Making. Mm-hmm. So that was a book that I read. And what I loved about that book, Matt, it was just two average guys. It wasn't like, wasn't like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It was just two, two guys that were friends. I think they were both in the insurance company. And it was, I was millionaires on the week. So it was on the weekends. It was the only time they invested in real estate. Mm-hmm. So that was the meat and potatoes that I really followed. I'm a real practical gal. I'm a numbers gal. And I have a really high intuition so I can sense things before, you know, they really happen most of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I hate to gloss over like all the other years of experience, that sort of thing. But I know that most of our listeners are experienced real estate investors that maybe own a couple of real estate investment properties. and they're just mystified about going big and uh, buying larger deals like you have. And so I wanted to take one as a case study. We talked, we were talking about it in the green room and I want to take that one and kind of dissect it in excruciating detail so that our listeners can pull out some actionable steps that they might be able to take in uh, their journey of going big. So uh, what would you have in mind for us today? So I would say one of the things I want to say just to kind of lay a foundation is that I started out with doubles. And then what I realized is that while there was this market of 10 to 15 unit properties that nobody was really looking at because the beginner was afraid of them and the big guys didn't want them. So I moved into that category and then I moved up to buying a 42 unit apartment complex. So that's the one I want to talk to you about today. So I was asking around because they're hard, they were hard to find. I mean, the people that buy and own those larger units, typically don't sell them. They're like legacy pieces that they hold on to and then they transfer them to their family when they get older. This one, did you want me to just go into details as far as how I found it? And Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely what the origin was about it. 40, 42 units is, a, is definitely a big jump for some people. So I don't know, what inspired you to even go after this? Was this a, a broker brought this to you? Does a property you just like drove by and you're like, I wonder what the heck is going on here? Tell me about that. So I'm a networker when it comes to business, and I really cherish connections that I have. So I'm always talking about real estate. I could be in getting a coffee and I'm talking to somebody about real estate. We get together for Thanksgiving. That's all we talk. I mean, (laughs) real estate is really a hot topic in my life. So I was asking around if anybody knew of any properties that were in distress or somebody was in trouble. And then I heard that this property went, was going into default just from somebody who knew somebody. That's how I really found out about the property. And when I went, drove over to the property, man, I mean, the doors were wide open. Here's this 42 unit. There was more people, it seemed like, living in the basement of this property than in the apartments. It just seemed like it was free-for-all, you know, going on in there. And I'm like, what really is going on here? So I dug a little deeper and I found out that the owners of this property were, they'd gotten twisted up in drugs and they had kind of walked away from the property. They weren't maintaining it. They weren't collecting rents. So then I went to, I found out who the bank was and I knew it was a smaller bank in town. And I decided, I ended up getting the keys. I can't remember how I got the keys, but it was this huge ring. It wasn't like master, it was 42 keys. You know, <laughs> I mean, like I was a jailhouse girl. I had it like on my belt loop. I went and walked into the bank with the keys and I put it on the, the vice president's desk. And he just kind of looked at me and I said, 
I'm here about the property that you have a mortgage on. And he said, we'd love to talk to you about it. We can see that you've got the keys to the kingdom here. He said, but unless you sign, unless the the current mortgage holders sign this over, we can't disclose anything to you. Mm -hmm. So that was a little bit of an ordeal because these guys were, they're not, they weren't in the right of mind. They were just, they really were strung out on drugs, but I did end up getting one of them to sign off on it. The nice thing about that is I found out a lot about the the mortgage. They owned $450,000 on the property, which was only $10,000 a unit, which was so incredibly inexpensive. And I wasn't sure exactly how the deal would go, you know, go together. I didn't know they would want me to remortgage it or if they were going to put it on the, you know, foreclose and take it back. Mm-hmm. And after conference, what was interesting is they had made, they were current on the mortgage and they were also current on the taxes, which was just really pretty remarkable for what was going on there. And it ended up costing me only $6,000 in an assignment fee to take over the mortgage mm-hmm. and some running of some papers. And then I was the proud owner of the crazy house. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when the work really began. I mean, it was, it took, it was, dil- I had to have a lot of diligence on that because it was the tenant base many times replicates the owners. Mm-hmm. And I found that there, you know, that's what was housed in there. So I really focused on how can I turn this? It was a department of social services, mostly tenants or tenants that didn't, didn't even live there or have a lease, but were squatters. Mm-hmm. So then I had to, you know, work with insurance to get those tenants moved out, really take a look at the upgrades that needed to be done. And there really was so much cash flow on that after the mortgage was paid and the taxes and the utility that I was able to, without using pretty much any of my own money, because I wasn't like I was cash rich at the time, mm-hmm. to upgrade like three or four units at a time because it was at least half occupied. Mm-hmm. And that was 18 months. I had the whole property turned around. I changed it to a Section 8 tenant base. Mm-hmm. And then because it was a challenging demographic and I was a single parent and I was kind of concerned for my welfare many times, there was a couple of really crazy incidents while I was there. I won't go into all that. <laughs> but so I sold it. I sold it to two police officers and they said after they owned it for a while, they they contacted me and said, you're something else to run this place the way you did. <laughs> <laughs> it was it, I learned a lot. It was definitely boot camp for me it was i could do anything after that you know i really felt <laughs> being chased down the hallway with a knife with paint in my hand i was more concerned about spilling the paint on my new carpet <laughs> my back. i guess this woman was all drugged out and i was evicting her and she was very upset with me i'm like wow this is interesting mm-hmm. so let's back up a little bit what was the plan i mean there's always the plan and then there's always like when the rubber hits the road, uh, sometimes you get punched in the face, right? So, I mean, what was your plan from the o- onset? You know, take over this mortgage, uh, maybe utilize, you know, stabilize the cash flow a little bit on tenants that you wanted to keep there that could pay rent and then use that cash flow to like do rehabs and other units. Like, what, like, tell me about that plan from the inception and maybe how it changed. So, the plan was more of it being a legacy piece for myself. That was the original plan. It was a, you know, at least a million dollar building at the time. I mean, this is about 20 years ago that I did this renovation and purchase. But once I got into it, it was so challenging. I was interested in, I was interested in something that big, but not in that particular demographic because it was a difficult, very difficult demographic to serve. Mm-hmm. 
So as I got into it, I realized that quickly that even Matt, when I turned it over to Section 8, I couldn't change the neighborhood there. I really discourage when I work with clients, I really discourage them from investing in D markets. I call them Mm -hmm. D markets. You know, if you're going to go into market, go into a C burgeoning B market at the lowest end, Mm -hmm. because I've been able to burgeon many markets that are C markets, but D markets, when you're close to even the edge of E, Mm -hmm. is you just, it's, you just can't, you know, there's the lines too far away to get to C be you know <laughs> so that was so when i got into it i changed my hat into a flipper a fixer mm-hmm. flipper i'm like okay so how do i get the cash flow increase the cash flow so that and stabilize it for somebody that that really is a specialist in working with section eight and i really was i owned before i bought that i owned 84 rentals in rochester where i primarily housed single parents children women with children Mm-hmm. So I knew a lot about Section 8, but it didn't matter because it still was a very, the environment there was really difficult. The other Section 8 properties that I owned in those tenants were in C neighborhoods. So it wasn't, and they were burgeoning into B neighborhoods. So that was a really, those are really good investments for me. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I want to pull on this thread a little bit because a lot of people that are looking to either scale up or get to their first property sometimes get, you know, I'd say what I call low bid syndrome when it comes to acquiring properties. And uh, they're like, I'm buying this thing for $40,000. What could possibly go wrong? And, you know, let's, uh, I'll just do it, convert it to section eight and the government will guarantee my rent and nothing could go wrong in the process. The issue is that at least in our market and a lot of markets and Rust Belt towns across the United States, your best section eight residents don't want to live in D neighborhoods. Right. They want to live in working class, like C, C plus neighborhoods. So, and you have to, you know, you have to pay to play in those markets. You're going to, you know, pay a premium for those types of properties. But in return, you are going to get super long term tenant in the process. Cause I have some Section 8 rentals where, God, I actually, for, I sometimes forget that they exist because they're so hands off. The people treat it as their own home and they're great. But like that other thing there is like, you can't, you know, it's like you can't just, I mean, I had that thing with like, I thought I had the Midas touch after I had some success in real estate. I was like, oh, I've been so successful. So I'm just going to apply this success and, you know, end of my next thing. And I did the same exact thing as you did is bought a property in like a D, you know, in a D area. And I was like, well, I can, you know, get this, you know, turned into a C property and attract better tenants. But a lot of times it doesn't work out that way. (laughs) It didn't there for sure. Mm -hmm. It was, yeah, I definitely would encourage people if they're going to invest and they need an affordable property, it, the lowest you would go is into the C neighborhood and get in the middle of the C closer to B. Mm-hmm. 100%. So, so you flipped this property, right? So you put your flipper hat on. I mean, kind of th- how do things change from then? Were you looking to boost NOI or net operating income as much as possible to, uh, to you know, juice the asset value on it before you sold it? Or were you kind of like midstream and you got approached apropos uh, of nothing by these uh, two police officers when you're doing this? No, I did increase, I doubled the rent there. And I that's so common for me. I'll buy a property that's been depleted. It needs elbow grease or sometimes a complete renovation. And I'll double and sometimes triple the rent because I hear these landlords brag about how they've had these long-term tenants that are paying like nothing for rent. I'm like, yeah, and the place is falling down around itself. Mm-hmm. Why don't you charge them like at least market rates so that you can afford 
to do the upgrades and they have a place they can be proud to live in. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, it's these slumlords, honestly, just makes me crazy. And this was owned basically by a slumlord, this 42 unit. So it was to increase the, the NOI. I focused on that. It was also to change the, the demographics from challenging tenant base to stabilize Section 8 tenants. I mean, what was interesting, what I attracted there was a Spanish-based tenant that was in rat-infested living environments. So for them to move into this to them was a huge step up. Oh, yeah. Which was really great because it was like, it was a lot of couples with a single child. They were in Section 8. So the environment and what it was really, what, if they stayed inside the apartment complex, they were fine. Even them going to get milk and bread from the corner store was problematic. It was mm-hmm. just this crazy thing that just kept happening. I'm like, wow, this is just kind of a sad situation. But the two cops thought they could take care of it. And so they bought it from me. I made about $350,000 on that flip. Wow. And then they only owned it for another year. And then they made like a half a million. And then I know. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, there was this amazing guy that really was my bodyguard there. He lived there. He was out of prison. He just really kind of knew the the grift. He was a grifter. Mm -hmm. And he was literally, he was with me for like 25 years. Like I took the guy with me everywhere. He just was really like my bodyguard. And he was Mike. But I said, I kept saying to him, God, if I left, kept it for another year, I would have made another. He goes, you would have been dead. (laughs) <laughs> okay it's a really good point <laughs> oh yeah no sometimes you just got you know take it as a wing win and uh take your chips off the table so on this in this experience you cleared a decent profit out of it and basically having nothing into the deal use the cash flow from the property to fund renovations your you know downstroke getting into it was about six grand you had a huge capital gain. Like, what did you do after that? Did you just basically put the cash in your balance sheet or did you do a 1031 exchange? Tell me about that. That one, I did put the cash and pay the capital gains on it. But I love 1031 exchanges. I mean, that's like the story of my life these days is that I don't do anything unless I'm doing a 1031 exchange. It just makes so much sense. I was so young at the time, Matt, that you know that you have to do, you know, if you sell it for for $1.1 million, you have to buy another 1.1. Well, I was buying things for like $50,000. I would have had to buy another 20 properties to equal that exchange. Absolutely. I did decide to cash out on that and pay the gains. And, but I love 1031 exchanges. It's truly the way to go. Yeah. I wrestle with this sometimes too, because as you know, as a former broker as well, I've worked with clients that have been in the 1031 exchange process. And I'm like, I'd really not want to do this unless I had a property already lined up that I was going to acquire because it has felt like a gun against my client's heads trying to find a replacement property. And furthermore, I'm in the you know space of raising capital for our deals. And the one thing is that in order for me and my partner to maintain our strength of a balance sheet as personal guarantors, we have to have a growing cash balance or cash equivalence balance in our balance sheet in order to maintain our strength as personal guarantors so then our investment partners don't have to sign on the debt like we do. So sometimes we, you know, we'll strategically sell off like a an older legacy property and just stick the cash in our balance sheet for those purposes and just pay our lumps via the ca- the capital gains even though it stinks, but like you said to your theme, sometimes you just got to take a win. It's like, okay, well, you're going to have to pay $50,000 in capital gains tax, but you made $200,000 in a deal you have no money into. So it's like, yeah, you know, let's uh, you know, let's ring the bell for that one. <laughs> Definitely ring the bell. 
for sure. So, so with um, the on that for me, and I, I'm sure this for you as well, is that I really think ahead. Like if I'm selling something and I know it's a 1031 exchange, you're right. You do, you definitely do have a gun to your head. You know, you've got 45 days to identify, six months to buy. One of the interesting things about a 1031 exchange that I just learned about in the last, I think, five years is there's the exchange where you can actually use the funds if it's a cap. I mean, mine have been cash deals to renovate the property, which I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. So it's a specialized 1031 exchange. And I've done like five of those and they've really worked out well because instead of me using my own, buying the property, then using my own money to renovate it, I can buy strategically buy a property and still have like the $50,000 left over that I can draw down now to, to do the renovations with. Absolutely. In about seven minutes or so, we're going to go into our live Q&A with our live studio audiences patiently waiting in the, in the backstage area. I wanted to ask you, what's next for you, Deb? What's next for me? Wow, man, it's such a great question. So I spent the last 15 years turning Geneva, New York around, being you know a huge investor there, a big um, presence there, working on removing the slumlords, doing more than 140 doors there alone in that wow. city, which was a significant investment there. And just, you know, and really supporting the other investors that came in and they actually were entrepreneurs that always wanted to be investors. So it was kind of like they're older, like my age and, and investors. So it was a lot of fun. And then I just knew that this past year that I was to take some time off. So I, I, I was kind of naughty because I said I wasn't going to fix and flip. I did do a couple. <laughs> but what's next for me is there's a couple of things next for me. One is I call it just, just do one for fun. And that's for, there's so many retirees, these baby boomers, they have so much money, so much experience, so much talent, and retirement wasn't for them. I'm one of those people. Mm-hmm. And they're just, I mean, they're kind of like dying in on the vine. And I've worked with clients like that. They've, there was an article written about me a couple of years ago in the Democrat Chronicle, and, and they reached out to me to mentor them. And what was beautiful to see is to see not only them come back to life, but the property to come back to life. And all the clients that I've worked with, and I haven't worked with tons of clients, but they're all still investing in real estate. They're not like you and I are mostly like you. I mean, I was like you when I was younger. But they're doing one at a time, right? I mean, they're doing maybe two a year. They're active. They're involved. And just doing one house in a neighborhood makes a huge impact. It just it lights up the area. Like the other homeowners start seeing like, wow, this property got renovated. They're out raking their leaves and trimming their hedges and painting their porches. Mm-hmm. So I just think there's, I think there's thousands of people out there that would do just one for fun. Mm-hmm. So that's one. And then the second thing is an investor's training where I really work with gals that want to start investing in real estate. That's really been on my heart for a long time because it's such a great business for women. And I think what they think like I did is like, oh my God, I can't take care of another. (laughs) I've got got one already and you have to think a little bit differently. You know, when you, I'm so glad I can't do a lot of the skilled trades because I have this personality where I would like to be doing the drywall and the painting and carpentry work. And I'm like, God, I'm so grateful. I mean, I can broom and sweep and clean, which is really my nemesis. I, you know, I, posted on my Facebook, like, here she is with her broom again. And they say, <laughs> oh, here she comes with that broom again. Like, get her out of here. You're doing your project. 
But that's what I'm up to is that we'll, I'll be rolling that out in 2024. Hey, keep us posted because that's one thing is that, you know, I help experienced investors scale into larger commercial deals and I get approached by newbies all, all the time that want to get into it and just need that direct, that direction. And that person that can hold their hand and illuminate a lot of the doubt and uncertainty. And also the actual painful uh, mistakes that you made that you know lead to money coming out of your pocket, right? I think I've made several six figures and actual money mistakes with real estate that led it to flying out of my pocket and getting set on fire. But then also I think I've missed out on probably multiple seven figures of opportunity cost associated with just having doubt and uncertainty in the process and not recognizing opportunities or knowing what to do. So that is completely awesome. Deb. And we'll look forward to uh, hear, uh, hearing about that so we can help help us spread the word. Absolutely. And also, the one thing too is that you know I think that there needs to be more gender equity in the real estate investing space. So we're always trying to find guests to come on the on the show that are women that have done you know bigger real estate deals, and it's tough out there. And I think that it makes it. I think that really myself having two kids right now. You know, after I had my first kid, I'm like, all right, I'm passe. I'm old news. What I'm doing now is for not just my kids but for other kids too. So trying to champion those people that because kids, you know, look up to what we're doing, right? And they emulate that. And so if there's young girls out there, they can see other women in the real estate field, then it doesn't seem like it's like a foreign thing or that it's like, oh, that's just a guy thing. So I really applaud you for that. And yet, and mad, the baby boomers, the grandmothers like me, their grandmothers to be renovating a house and have the grandkids stop by like with, if you came with the grandkids and like grandma's like renovating this house, dad. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, it's, you're right. It affects everyone. I mean, it's one of my greatest stories is my, really was my first client and she was a retired executive and she always just did, she just wanted to do one. And then her son came to the project with the grandkids and he was a cardiologist and an attorney and from the conversations she had with him, with his partners in his core business, they ended up buying a couple of large multi-units, but it was all inspired from her doing that one renovation project. Yeah, it's that ripple effect effect and uh, butterfly effect that happens um, out there. So, well, thank you so much. Last parting words, because it, you know our target audience is people that are experienced that want to scale up and go big. What's your advice to them? My advice would be, and this is coming from a woman. You know, men are wired different than women. I would say, if you're afraid to do that first big project, at least do one rental property whether it's a single family or go smaller to begin with. Because once you, you know, once you do that and you understand the, the makeup of a house, a property, everything from the roof down to the sewer system, it demystifies it for you. So then when you go bigger, it's like, oh, it's just a bigger, you know, bigger boiler, bigger roof. It's not that big of a deal. And you already have, if you have a single family or a smaller multi-unit, You've already built your team. So you have all that in place. So then when you do scale, you don't have to like scrape around to put that together. Absolutely. Great advice, Deb. Well, we're going to wrap up now, go into the live Q&A with our live virtual studio audience. So if you're listening to this right now on Apple or Spotify and you want to get in on the live Q&A with ex exclusive live Q&A with our guests like like Deb, like Gina Barbaro, Matt Faircloth, Ashley Kerr, Beth Azor, Paula Nichols. You got to join our Facebook group. It's completely free. You can get in on these sessions and actually hear the podcast months before 
it comes out and also engage live with our guests too that want to give back and adopt that giver's gain. So definitely be sure to look us up on Facebook and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you so much, Deb. I appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. 